Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode I'm joined by Professor Miles Korak to discuss what an EI system for the 21st century should look like. Professor Korak was once a member of senior management at StatsCan. He's now at City University of New York after a number of years at the University of Ottawa, and he's had a long list of impressive research positions, now a senior scholar at the Stone Center. I came to know his name because in 2017, he was an economist in residence at Employment and Social Development Canada and a lead author of Canada's first poverty reduction strategy. Now, in the forward to that strategy, Professor Korak acknowledged the work of Amartya Sen in his own thinking, which I remember piquing my interest when I first read it. And I'll quote just a piece of that forward here. He writes, that our task is about whether Canadians have the resources, monetary or otherwise, to live a life with dignity and to participate normally in society, about whether the young have a solid education that will open doors for them, about whether those doors are open free of discrimination so that everyone's skills and talents are recognized, about whether families are confident about the future, knowing they can deal with the challenges that tomorrow will surely bring. Dignity, opportunity, resilience. These three words summarize the concerns the minister heard. They reflect the moral purpose that motivates a poverty reduction strategy. Now, most recently, Professor Korak has written about what an EI system for the 21st century should look like in the wake of that commitment in the throne speech, and that's the focus of our conversation. You can find his writing and work overall at mileskorak.com. Miles, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I posted about supporting wealth tax on Twitter, and you responded to suggest implementation challenges. And I said, well, let's talk about a wealth tax, come on the podcast. But actually, I'm much more interested in talking to you about our social safety net, because that's the core of your work in in many respects. You were really a, a significant lead on our poverty reduction strategy. And I've read your recent work on what an EI system for the 21st century might look like. Well, your starting point is from the speech from the throne, which is calling for an employment insurance system for the 21st century. And I think we should applaud that ambition. Reform to this program is is long overdue. Employment insurance has been part of the social safety net fabric and a very important part for a long time. And uniquely, it falls almost entirely in the jurisdiction of the federal government. So we're looking for big changes as we have been for some decades. Maybe I could just say a few words about how we got here. Employment insurance dates back to the Great Depression in the 1920s. And interestingly enough, the federal government moved into this area to provide an insurance program But its initial attempts were found to be unconstitutional. And it was only in the 1940s that we got our unemployment insurance system. It was very much framed around the notion of insurance, that a job loss is an insurable loss. But the problem with that is there's a huge collective dimension to job loss. So whenever we enter into major crises, we need a program that is comprehensive, that responds to big shocks in, in, a, in real time, a program that recognizes the changing dynamics of jobs and offers income insurance, and a program that really speaks to the notion of inclusion and in it for all by having comprehensive coverage. But what we've done since the 1980s or so is chip back on our program. Work disincentives were a real issue. The use of the program as a 
form of regional income support became dominant, and slowly the program lost its ability to respond to big shocks, to cover a large fraction of income and replace the income that's lost. And coverage shrunk to the point that only four out of 10 unemployed people actually qualify for the program. If you're going to knit a new fabric here, a new employment insurance system for the future, I see those as the big challenges, responding to big shocks, offering comprehensive income support, and enhancing coverage. And at a high level in this crisis, we've seen millions of Canadians in need who were unable to access income support. The federal government responded by creating a whole new program on the fly through the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, rolling that now into EI. But for those who are less familiar with employment insurance, what makes the system so broken, as it were, or in need of repair? Well, two things. One, I think the government has taken significant steps to address is just the administration of the program. I mean, the COVID crisis was this avalanche of need, and the employment insurance system was just this narrow garden hose with all this need flowing into a very narrow pipe. And administratively, it just couldn't handle the demands being put on it. And so that was part of the need to respond with whole new program architecture. The service delivery side was driving the policy side. And I think the government's learned that lesson really quickly and changes are afoot. And that's a good thing. But the other limitations are are really hardwired into the program. So for example, when we went into the crisis in March, everybody knew that something serious was going to be happening. Lockdowns were instigated. This was going to have implications for jobs. But the EI program didn't know. It was looking backward, not forward. The qualification rules for EI do vary by the unemployment rate prevailing in the different regions across Canada. But there are 62 different regions across the country. And we're asking Statistics Canada to give us an unemployment rate for each of those 62 regions so that we can fine-tune the parameters of the program to the local labor market conditions. And this is beyond the statistical capacity of its workhorse survey. So what Statistics Canada does to try to eliminate the noise that is endemic to getting these small area estimates It uses a a three-month rolling average of the unemployment rate. So the unemployment rate that's used to determine the qualification rules, let's say for March of this year, were an average of unemployment rates in January, February, and March. So as the unemployment rate was shooting up and job loss was increasing in March and April, the unemployment figures in January and February were still determining eligibility and for that reason, duration. So we've got this backward-looking key for this door to get in. And it has to do with the fact that we've, over the years, cut and carved the many regions of the country into these small areas. So one thing the government should do, I hope, is perhaps introduce a whole new benefit phase. So imagine something like a CERB, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, automatically kicking in when the provincial unemployment rate changes dramatically. So it's not levels of the unemployment rate that matter, it's changes that matter. And we get from Statistics Canada monthly figures 
on employment and unemployment at the provincial level. So it'd be much quicker. And if you hardwire these, this kind of rule into it, the program would be much more responsive and you wouldn't have to rely on all of the discretion that policymakers have to do and new legislation to, to kickstart the program. So that's just an example of the backward looking nature of the program. The duration of benefits is also sort of structured by these small regions and their unemployment rates. So there has to be some reforms for uh, an EI system for the 21st century that makes it more sensitive to big shocks and deliver just in time. And so for responding to big shocks, take your point that where a provincial unemployment rate reaches a certain level, then a new benefit phase would come in that says everyone has access to this extended duration obviously tied to the crisis, because as provincial employment rates would come down, then that benefit phase would would fade out and you would be left with EI as it is. Though EI as it is, I look here in Toronto and one has to have worked 700 hours. And so in a crisis that works for that individual who is below 700 hours would have access to EI in the course of a big shock. But when we think of an EI system for the 21st century, what do we say to people who maybe we don't see another pandemic that eliminates jobs in a crisis situation, but people face more personal crises and they're unable to reach those 700 hours? Do you see an EI system for the 21st century responding You know, when unemployment rates are more normal, I suppose? Absolutely. Uh, and again, the throne speech has this line that sort of a, speaks to coverage in terms of the future of work, if we can use that phrase talking about covering the self-employed and those in the gig economy. So I think the second thing to do is to really take this vision of a new workplace seriously and think hard about how you would design a program, not just with respect to eligibility and coverage, but also with respect to the fraction of income that's replaced by this insurance program. Maybe let's step back and think about this. I mean, we, we're invited to repeatedly think about the future of work. What does that mean? You and I here are talking across space <laughs> in ways that we probably wouldn't have even imagined months ago. As a parliamentarian, you're doing a lot of your work at your home in Toronto and voting on bills by not being here in Ottawa. And many, many Canadians are now working at home. So this advanced telecommunications technology that has been creeping into our lives, all of these changes have been moved forward in a dramatic way. Now, what's that going to do in a context of globalization? And we can learn lessons from the experiences we had in the 1980s and 1990s, where globalization meant shipping goods across countries. And that led to important changes for many Canadian workers, significant decline in, in, in manufacturing work that was traditionally unionized and well-paid. Many people were interrupted in the middle of their careers. The EI system did not respond very well for people like that. But what's going to happen now is this is just going to be amped up to the service sector as well. Advanced telecommunications is going to mean telemigration in a, in a sense. You know, why pay a high-paid accountant in downtown Toronto to do work that uh, um, someone in another country could do at a much lower wage rate. So just as firms are finding that domestically they can have workers working anywhere in the country, so too eventually they'll figure out that they can get services across national borders as well as within them. 
And what I think you're going to see is a lot of people experiencing much more tenuous hold onto their jobs. And this is going to move up the wage distribution to include more well-paid people. So what do you do in that context? One for an EI system for the 21st century is the maximum insurable earnings should increase. Right now, you get about, I think it's 55% of your earnings subject to a maximum. So if you're making above the maximum insurable earnings, EI is not even replacing half of your, your income. The maximum insurable earnings is really archaically set. It's an average industrial wage. And we moved to a service economy a long time ago. So we need to redefine that parameter in the system. And we have to increase this level so a larger fraction of earnings is covered. One thing that was in the Liberal Party platform in the last election, and I believe is in Minister Qualtro's mandate letter, and that's the career insurance benefit. If the minister is serious about introducing an EI system for the 21st century, then she should think hard about this innovative form of insurance. Basically, in this policy, which has been around for a couple of decades, we are insuring wages not jobs. So if someone's had a stable job for a long period of time, has a good deal of productivity in that particular firm and gets laid off, that person, he or she, is never going to recover their wage rate. And what EI should be doing is regardless, if they find another job, it's going to pay less. And it's going to pay less for the rest of their lives, if you think of a 55-year-old, say. And so what EI should be doing is sort of smoothing that transition to a lower income, uh, regardless of whether they get a job or not, wherever they get that job, that wage in some sense should be topped up. So I see an EI system for the future in the context of the changing nature of work as covering a larger fraction of earnings and having a wage insurance component to it. And how does that then get paid for out of EI contributions. Maybe we look at it in two tranches. We look at the expansion of the regular EI system as you would like to see it. And then we also look at this respond to big shocks extra phase. The first obviously would be paid out of EI contributions and the second out of the general treasury. Well, that's a good question. And I think the way to frame that is to ask yourself about the causes of unemployment. When we're in a uh, pandemic, when we're in a great recession, when we're in a commodity price shock, that's a, a collective shock. No individual firm and the demand structure that that firm placed was a cause of that. And it seems to me for those kinds of big aggregate shocks, that's really where we are all in it together. And in that sense, I think the federal government should be making contributions out of the Consolidated Revenue Fund. And in fact, if you go back to the employment insurance system, well, it was called unemployment insurance in the early 1970s, there was a phase of the benefit structure that was geared to cyclical shocks, recognized the collective nature of that, and that came straight out of the federal government's budget. So I think for those big shocks, we should fund those collectively through a progressive income tax system. For things like increased coverage, and the wage insurance that I was talking about, that would come out of the premiums that firms and their employees pay. If we raise the maximum insurable earnings, that will mean more money coming into the coffers of the EI account. 
it's sort of a virtual account. It's not a real EI fund. And I think that would support the workers who face more challenges by funds from those who have been lucky and have weathered that storm. My own view is that all of that should come from employer contributions and the employee contributions should fund special benefits like maternity and parental leave and and sickness and these other so-called special benefits. And as we've seen the special benefits in the context of this crisis, so we've moved from CERB to the recovery benefit within the EI system, the EI system, if one's worked 125 hours with a minimum floor, but we've also seen then a caregiving benefit, a sickness benefit. And yet I've read recently that application has been a bureaucratic nightmare, that individuals don't know necessarily which program to go to. And we've gone from the simplicity of CERB to something more convoluted. And can you speak to, when we look at the disparate benefits, even within EI, is there not some value to simplicity and ensuring that people can turn to one place rather than trying to navigate multiple different benefits? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. We've learned a number of lessons from the pandemic. And certainly the experience of CERB has taught us about the importance of simplicity and in, in, in administration, the sort of trust and verify ethic. With EI, I suppose it's natural to see how over the years there has been piecemeal and ad hoc responses to different needs that have arisen, and you and you layer program upon program, and each one of those, you know, be it special benefits special care benefits, sickness benefits, maternity benefits, each have their own rules. And it just leads to a good deal of complexity. Even the notion of qualifying because you quit your job can send many claimants down administrative night rabbit holes if the employer doesn't quite fill out the form appropriately. So I think, as you suggest, simplicity is a real virtue here. The other thing is, I mean, government has only so much information and life is complicated. (laughs) 30 million Canadians leading many different lives, facing different sorts of not just job market risks, but also demographic risks. Yes, it's fine. We have a caregiving benefit for a close relative who is about to die. But do we really need to insist that the claimant give the government a doctor's note to verify that during the most stressful time in their lives. And and then other things happen at different points in life that it's hard to anticipate. So I feel that we need to design things so that people have agency and they can use the funds available to them in the way to respond to the needs they have in real time. And I've argued one way of doing that is restructuring a large part of the special benefits as individual accounts, almost like a savings scheme, like we do with retirement incentive savings schemes or tax-free savings accounts. Let the individual's contributions flow into an individual fund, just like when I make contributions to the Canada Pension Program. I know that it's there. I know how much I've got and I can retire when I want. I can also draw down this fund according to any need that I see appropriate for my family. Now, I'm not saying that that should entirely be funded by individual contributions. There should be some basic amount that the government provides. Well, just like it does for our pension system, there is a base amount that goes to people who are most in need through old age security. 
then there's an amount in my public pension fund that's tied to my earnings. And, and so I imagine EI personal accounts being structured in the same way. I'm really interested in that view of things because when you were speaking about the emergency sort of benefit and it would fade away, and then you were speaking about an increase to insurable earnings for people who are earning more and, and not really being compensated if they were to lose their job or, or if their job were to be outsourced and they were only to find employment at a lesser amount. That makes sense for people who are able to earn a decent income, but then ensuring a, a basic amount for everyone that wouldn't fall away. I mean, why would we want that basic amount to fall away for those who still struggle to find work or who can't find work? It it seems to me that we need a social safety net that leaves no one behind. And our social safety net doesn't leave seniors behind in the same way that it leaves working age Canadians behind. And then that's a great frustration. That's well put. The last government introduced a poverty reduction strategy, and very much a cornerstone of that was the Canada Child Benefit. So it's sort of interesting what you say. We've done a really good job of alleviating poverty for families with children. I think historically we've done a good job for older Canadians. And now we have a group of people in the middle who face job market and demographic risks and they're falling through the cracks. And what should we do about them? I think the EI system can be restructured in in the ways we've discussed to go part of the way. But as you suggest, it doesn't go all the way. But I think we have the building blocks, Nate, to do just what you said. They're already in place, and I think they have to be amped up and organized a little bit better. For example, the Canada Workers Benefit, you can think of as speaking to the very group that you highlight. It's a basically a top up to your working income. If you don't make any income, or I think it's you have to make at least $3,000 in the year, you don't get anything from this program. So why not just adjust that program to have some basic entitlement to it, regardless of how much you make? And that would be sort of the income guarantee of a basic annual income or a universal annual income. And that could be tied to one of the indicators in the poverty reduction strategy. There is an indicator that refers to deep poverty. And that's basically an indicator meant to reflect some of the basic and essential needs that all Canadians have a right to. And so why not offer an entitlement in the Canada workers benefit that responds to that need and then just enhance the program by making it a little bit more generous as you do work more And then it would be sort of an important aspect or another tier in what is starting to amount to a basic annual income that has incentives for engagement in it. And if people are on this program, the Canada Workers Benefit, and they make enough income, regardless of their hours, regardless of the nature of the work, use that to qualify them for employment insurance so they can graduate into that when and if they need it. So I think I really appreciate the way you're thinking about this. EI can't do it all, but I do want to suggest we don't need a revolution to get to a basic annual income. We just need an evolution of some of the programs that are already in place. I generally agree insofar as I look at the math and I see 50 some odd billion dollars for GIS and OAS for seniors. I see $25 billion 
for families with kids through the Canada Child Benefit. And when I first came into office, it was only $1.2 billion for the Canada Workers Benefit. I actually directed a significant amount of effort to try to improve that and improve modestly, but we're still just over $2 billion. And we made it automatic, which was a huge win. The employment amount is not means tested, and that's a couple billion dollars too. And then we do have the GST tax credit. So there are different pieces that you could conceive of pulling together as a social safety net of sorts and a basic annual income, as you say, for working age Canadians. But I also wonder, when we get back to that simplicity question, if it wouldn't be simpler to look at the EI system and to say that the government is going to, as we are currently doing, guarantee a minimum amount for those who are 125 hours or through the CRB, you don't have to have any eligibility hours except for having $5,000 from the previous year. You know, you could argue there ought not to be any thresholds there uh, as far as it goes. And I don't want to get to the second part of why I say that, but you could imagine a minimum amount guaranteed by the government through the EI system, which would not then be insurance, but would be guaranteed by government. And then the insurance system would kick in to provide more than that as individuals are paying contributions or their employer pays contributions. And the reason I've moved to this notion is from the throne speech, we have a commitment to EI system for the 21st century, but we also have a commitment to a disability benefit modeled on GIS. And I can imagine those two programs operating to get us very close to a basic income for working age Canadians and for those who are unable to work. But then I also wonder about the bureaucratic troubles of defining what disability means, who then becomes eligible for that. And then there's Canada workers benefit over here. And then there's the GST tax credit over there. And, and why we wouldn't, in the interest of simplicity, say we're going to guarantee a minimum amount and then the insurance system is going to kick in above that. Yeah, that's a good question. Why wouldn't we? Maybe it pays to sort of step back and think about our attitudes towards people in need. It's interesting, isn't it, that we are able to socially divert funds and transfer them to the elderly, to families with children, and now people with disabilities. In some sense, they're deserving. But everyone else, it's sort of that Puritan ethic of having to make your own way, disproportionate concern for work incentives. And there's some moralizing going on in the background, either implicitly or explicitly. And I wonder to what extent as a society that holds us back. That's at one level. I don't know the answer to why wouldn't we. Now, simplicity and income transfers is going to be a huge virtue. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't worry about design and work disincentives. But for example, to get back to the speech from the throne, there's also a promise there about the self-employed. And as the government moves forward on that, I wonder how complicated and rules-bound that system is going to be. Because if you're going to be talking about moral hazard, it's going to be very strong in that area. But what you've sort of laid out, specifically with reference to disability, is I think a precedent that can be built on. I think the thing that we're also ignoring in our conversation is the interaction with the provinces. I'm wondering if there's a space here, if there's a time for the federal government to be just handling all of the income transfer components of social support and then leaving more specific in-kind and service delivery to the provinces. So I wonder if that's behind it as well. 
Well, I, to the point of the conversations with provinces, I, I did put the basic income question to Minister Qualtro, and she referenced the difficult conversations one would have with the provinces. But I did say, with our commitment to a disability benefit, aren't we already in the game? We're already going to have those difficult conversations, so why not have an even bigger, more difficult conversation? Because we're down this road, whether we like it or not, if we're serious about that commitment to, to people with disabilities and, and that basic income benefit. In terms of the federal responsibility for income transfers and then leaving more tailored programs for provinces, I, I like that idea. I, I wonder then how we can ensure that our income transfers are not perfectly matched to regional cost of living, but at least take that into account in a more serious way. So the benefit of the CERB was simplicity, but I can tell you, speaking from downtown Toronto, that $2,000 doesn't go very far in comparison to $2,000 in rural New Brunswick, say. Do you think the federal systems can be responsive to regional cost of living? I think that's a really good point and something that we often ignore. But it's not ignored in the poverty reduction strategy. So there is a commitment for the government to regularly update poverty lines. And poverty lines do vary, I think, almost across 50 regions in the country. So the cost of housing in Toronto is something very different than it is in in Shikudami or in Kamloops. And if you tied programs to the indicators in the poverty reduction strategy, in particular the poverty line, you might go some measure in meeting your concern. After all, we do have a commitment to reduce poverty by 50%. And so that's going to require different measures and different levels of support in different parts of the country inherently. I have always considered Minister Duclos to be one of the more thoughtful members of cabinet, a proper academic, and he really thinks through through policy issues in a deep way. And you worked closely with him on that poverty reduction strategy, which I thought was, was excellent. When it came to the overall targets, though, we've revisited our commitments on chronic homelessness and ending chronic homelessness in the throne speech to say, well, we had a 50% commitment by 2030. Now it's going to be a 100% commitment. And I like to see greater ambition. When it comes to the poverty reduction strategy as one of its architects, why 50%? And do you think we are capable as a society in the same way we've elevated our commitments on ending chronic homelessness? Do you think we can or maybe should do the same as it relates to ending poverty? Well, Minister Duclos offered a great deal of very valuable leadership in constructing the poverty reduction strategy. And one of the important things that he impressed upon us was also to tie these targets to the UN goals. So both the interim and the longer term target, 50% reduction in poverty, links up to the country's broader commitments internationally. And that's that's a great anchor. And I don't think you necessarily have to revise that because that would get us down to a poverty rate somewhere in the neighborhood of five or six percent, which is pretty low. Because the thing that you also have to appreciate is that there's a lot of dynamics in the labor market. People move in and out of poverty. There are a lot of short term spells. And there's also just a little bit of statistical noise. So if you can drive the poverty rate down to five or six percent, you've basically eliminated it, in my view. I don't think we have to revise the targets, but we have to keep our feet on the gas pedal and our eyes on the horizon to reach those targets. One of the things that makes this a real difficult policy domain is just sort of the lag in information. I mean, Statistics Canada releases those poverty numbers 18 months to two years after the fact. So I would only be guessing what the poverty rate would be in 2019 never mind what's going to happen in 2020. 
I think most advocates are grateful for the efforts around homelessness. There's still questions about you know, delivery and effectiveness of response, but to the extent that those targets help keep your vision on the road ahead, that's why they're important. And every government should just strive to make things better than the situation they inherited. And that's what the targets help to do. In terms of that incremental but important progress, you have said, and this speaks to me, but that we have strong fibers for comprehensive income support already in place. And we've talked about, but the big gap in this safety net are working age Canadians living on their own. The other thing you wrote recently that spoke to me in in part because as a member of parliament, I was quite frustrated with our national grocers for eliminating pandemic pay. And I think that a living wage ought to be a more serious part of our conversation, hard at the federal level in some respects. But you wrote, it is nice for premiers and prime ministers to thank truck drivers and grocery store clerks for their essential work, but it will be hypocrisy of the highest order for our governments to only hope to start up again where we left off. And when you look at income supports provided by governments, and especially by the federal government, how do you see minimum wages playing an important complementary role? All right. You're raising a whole host of issues that are really important. I think in promoting equality, in promoting an inclusive society, we can only get so far through the tax and transfer system. And increasingly, a lot of economists are suggesting that we have to worry about how the job market works, how our wages are determined. And minimum wages are an example of one tool that tries to structure incomes while they're earned in the market. Certainly, one of the important lessons in this pandemic is the in it all together theme. And, you know, clearly that's started to fall apart. Now, the government has to do a lot more, let me use this sort of vague word, market shaping policies. So that growth, when it does happen, is more inclusive. It's a relatively more benefit to the less advantage. And so what we can imagine is a world in which there's going to be increasing corporate concentration more and more power accrues to the employer. Workers have less and less voice. The minimum wage is one tool to give workers a voice. But actually, before the pandemic, Minister Qualtro had an expert panel report on modern labor standards. I would go back and reread that report in light of what we'd learned. And one of the themes in the report was the importance of worker voice. Ultimately, wages are determined by bargaining power and who holds the upper hand. And for a short period during the pandemic, fairness dictated and workers had some bargaining power and that led to so-called hero pay. When that bargaining power disappears, the outcomes are realigned. You saw, for example, during the commodity price boom, many low-skilled workers in Alberta, Newfoundland and Labrador had bargaining power and their wages went up because labor demand exceeded labor supply. I think a good deal of attention, more attention has to be paid to labor market regulation, to giving workers more uh, voice, so that in all of the different bargains that are repeatedly struck in the economy, wages rise as growth rises. Minimum wages are only one tool in that, important as they are. And the other limitation, though, is that the federal government has only jurisdiction over federally regulated industries. So maybe it can lead by example But ultimately, the provinces have to also follow that lead. 
and where there may be more federal policy might be, and you reference in one slide deck that I read, but competition policy, we are a country of oligopolies and competition policy plays an important role. I, I highlight minimum wages in part, they are certainly, and you rightly note that they are one part of the policy toolkit and other labor standards are important too. When I look at income supports provided by, and hopefully increasing income supports provided by the federal government, you want to make sure that there are strong minimum wages in place so that employers don't look to that assistance and say, well, we can lower our wages and our workers will be fine. Well, that's a very good point. And I'm an economist and you're embarrassing me by me not having put that on the table because interactions in the labor market are really important. So this relates directly to our discussion about income support at the at the low end and where the incidence of that subsidy actually gets captured. So minimum wages should be paired with that kind of income support for the reason that you've just highlighted. Well, Miles, I got to say, it's a small promise in text, but it's a big promise depending upon how we realize it. This notion of an EI system for the 21st century, and I would I would pair that with the promise of a disability benefit along the lines of GIS for seniors. Depending upon how we realize those two promises, when you talk about the income supports we have in this country and needing to build upon the strong fibers for comprehensive income support that are already in place, those two promises, if realized in a significant way, would make that comprehensive system all the better. And so as you write more, as you publish more on the question of what an EI system for the 21st century ought to look like, please do share it with me because I I would like to see that promise through as, as much as possible. I definitely will. And I, and I very much appreciate this conversation and your engagement Maybe if I could leave with one concern or a piece of advice, whatever cabinet and the minister begins to put forward, I think we as Canadians, engaged Canadians should be asking ourselves, and particularly parliamentarians, how much of a difference would this have made during the pandemic, during the bursting of the oil price bubble, during the Great Recession? These new reforms, would they have allowed our country to have reached different outcomes if we replay the movie that we've experienced in the last 20 years. That's ultimately, I think, the litmus test to judge what's coming ahead. Thanks, Miles. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca. And please do leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing on your platform of choice.